One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One Aslan ring to rule them all. Lion. One the ring to lion. find them. The great lion. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. Books from Earth, a podcast. Relive your favorite books of fantasy, sci-fi, and apocalyptic stories. Yes, there are lots of spoilers. The spoiling is constant. Yes, there can be adult content. We are adults making content. Spoilers, adult content, books from Earth. Time to relive a favorite book. Welcome to the Books from Earth podcast, episode 5. Featuring Awakened, the 2018 supernatural, horror, pre-apocalyptic thriller by James S. Murray. Scary Times in the New York City Subway. Awakened is Murray's debut novel, and with help from veteran sci-fi writer Darren Wellmuth, he delivers a nail-chomper. These two team up again for the sequel novel, The Brink. Interesting side note, you might recognize Murray because he is Murr from the long-running TV show Impractical Jokers, a candid camera-esque comedy show that airs on True TV. This novel, this thriller, this I-just-stayed-up-way-too-late-page-turner, had us on the edge of our seats, so buckle up and relive Awakened with Episode 5 of Books from Earth. I'm Josh, and I'm joined by my fellow Books from Earth podcaster, Lou. Hey, guys. Maureen. Hey, everybody. And Jack. Hello, Earth people. First, let's go back and revisit what this book is about. I discovered this book because I'm a huge fan of Impractical Jokers. I, I have... It's hilarious. I have low standards for all comedy, and this is not exactly highbrow comedy, but it just is so funny to me. And so I followed these guys on social media and discovered that that Murray wrote a book, and he had always wanted to write a book. The genesis of the book came from he him taking the subway home late at night, and he lived in Staten Island, and he would be working in Manhattan or Brooklyn, and it's a very long subway ride. And back in the day, you know, it was two hours or whatever to get back to Staten Island. The train would lose contact with the third rail and the lights would go out and the air conditioning would go out. And it would just be silence and darkness at 2.30 in the morning. And his imagination would run wild. And he came up with horrible scenarios during that time period, you know, those snippets of darkness, and came up with one chapter in this book. He was not famous then. He went to publishers to try to get published, and it didn't work out. And eventually, after becoming famous for his comedy, uh, was able to go to publishers. They connected him with the his co-author uh, to help kind of smooth out any of the writing and this and the uh, kind of any wrinkles in the plot. And they wrote it together. It's a really fun book. It is a uh, popcorn thriller, uh, very cinematic, and essentially. There's a new subway station opening up underneath the Hudson between New Jersey and Manhattan. State of the art. Picture Penn Station underground. I'm picturing like, you know, Starbucks, shops, a place that a trendy food spots, well lit, clean, very cool. It is going to be the mayor's crowning achievement. The president is, is of the United States is present and so are the other many other dignitaries. And the train's supposed to roll in to, you know, the first ride, 
the first run filled with passengers, including the mayor's wife. And when it rolls in, there's nobody on it. And it's been torn to shreds. All the glass is broken. And it's just a bloodbath. And that's what gets our story started. They think that it's terrorists. We know as readers that it's not terrorists because uh, during the construction of the tunnel, there was an incident that involved a pretty cool character. He got killed. Uh, so we know it's something supernatural, but the people in the book don't. It takes them a couple hundred pages to realize there's something really, really bad going on here. There's people on the outside trying to save him. There's the mayor who lost his, basically him and his wife are estranged, uh, is dead set on saving his wife, kind of goes into hero mode. The president and the Secret Service team get, like, go into a, basically a safe room and try to escape. There's a construction engineer who, and podcaster, Nunos is the, is the guy who plays the role of the hero, say, help save the president, help save a lot of people. There's people on the outside coming in to save them. In the background, there's this uh, shadowy international conspiracy about the monsters that live in the deep. And it's a really fun story. I thought it was great. Page Turner, I can't wait to read you know books two and three. I hope we learn more about the monsters and where they come from. I hope we learn more about the international conspiracy. And it was just a good, good time. It was a good time. And no doubt that this book was a fast burn. Fast How burn. fast? Yeah. How fast of a burn was this for you guys? Maureen, was this a fast burn? How fast? So what I loved most about this, the fast burn of this book was it was like, the, it was so, such a page turner in the beginning, and then he delved into the character development. So it was a huge, like, oh my god, I gotta keep reading this, I can't put it down. It goes so quickly, and then right in the middle, it's like, you're still turning the pages because the action's still going on, but you're also getting all of this character development and backstory. It was just, it was just, the pacing was fabulous, in my opinion. Lou, how long did it take you to read this book? It took me four days, literally four <laughs> days. As soon as I picked it up, I could not pick it down. Every time I got a chance to read the book, I read the book. Got I mean, every single chance. I was like, I mean, from the very, from the introduction, everything, you know? And like Jack, I can't wait for the, uh, I can't wait for books two and three. I don't know. Is there book three? It's playing yeah, the trilogy. Oh, wow. Book yeah, two I'm is due out you. this summer, so it'll be a good summer read. Yeah. 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 In I four or less I... days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I can't, I can't wait. So these, there's, there's creatures in this book. I don't know what to call them. Monsters, you know, aliens or what. We, we're given very little background on them, on them, only that they've been around for a long time and that they live underground and were first discovered there underground, as far as we know. But what, what do you guys think they look like? Well, to me, they looked like – like I just kept picturing them as like a mix between Venom and the aliens in the Alien movie. I forget what they're called off the top of my head. But yeah, like I just the big with the with the scales and the slimy kind of and – oh, they were just gross. I loved them. <laughs> I kind of pictured them the same way. And every time we, we got like a description like the long claws or the, the scales, I would just kind of picture the monster from Aliens with now with long claws. So it, that was sort of my clay as well. Lou, Jack, you guys pick up the same thing? I picked up Godzilla, you know, miniature Godzillas. <laughs> <laughs> That's I what love I, it. I, yeah. 
for me, it was you know, the movie Cloverfield, where the big Godzilla creature attacks. At some point, there's those things falling off it, and they can't tell what it is. And they're like babies or something, and they're, they get into the subways. And to me, they, they were like baby Godzillas, baby Cloverfields also. Very good. Well, maybe we'll get even more descriptions in the in the next novel called The Brink. Or, you know, if it ever goes to a movie or TV show, we'll see whoever produces that, whatever they come up with. But Uh-oh. This has got to be a movie. It's got to be a movie. It's just too well-paced to not be. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's going to be, as we said, popcorn thriller. What about monsters from other stories? We've mentioned Godzilla, Cloverfield, Aliens. Do you guys have some favorite monsters from some other stories or some monsters or maybe not even monsters, just creatures or what have you from a thriller or a scary movie that really made an impact on you? Well, I saw The Exorcist, and I did not sleep for three days. That was absolutely the scariest movie I've ever seen. And even though it's one of those where you just – you never really see what the monster is, it's so terrifying to me, like the thought of the devil coming and possessing me. But that's a horrifying thought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's probably my favorite monster, and I will never watch that movie again. <laughs> for me, and I don't think the monster was scary, but – there's this movie Fright Night, the original Fright Night. And I was very young. I was on the oldest of five. I was babysitting. My parents were out. All my siblings were asleep. And I go, I'm watching Fright Night and I go outside to smoke a cigarette in the dark. And we kind of lived in, in a wooded area. And I started being very afraid, just shivering, shivering with fear. And it's like one of the most scared I've ever been. And my imagination just got the best of me. So I know it's not a scary creature, right? Especially the special effects they had in the 80s and everything. But that's the one that it's, at the, it's on the Mount Rushmore of fear for me. You know, I don't do scary at all. And one of my early, see, for me, one of my earliest scaries, show, it wasn't a movie, it was a show. You guys remember Shaka Zulu? In the 80s. Oh, my God. You're taking me back. Yes. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> you know, we had to watch it being Africans. We're like, oh, my God, Shaka Zulu. You know, um, anyway, they had this scene with witch, with witches. And I grew up with stories of witches and these little monsters called Tokoroshis. And, you know, they, uh, the artists, they, they, uh, they make them, right? And the little miniature, little miniature monsters, you know. And there's also the, these these people who dress up and they go dancing and they dress up in monster faces. And I was really, really scared of them. But uh, we watched that because I got really, really scared. And I and I remember thinking, I don't like horror. I don't like horror. And I just didn't consider this horror at all, you know. Mon- I, monster movies are like not really horror to me. You know, I mean, I could watch Godzilla, which I don't think is horror at all, you know, and Alien, which I don't think is horror. It's a little suspenseful, but it's not horror. It's got a lot of science fictions, you know. So for for me, this this book was not horror at all, you know. And it wasn't really like Aliens either, but it, ha- it did have those monsters, you know, who have been here a really long time. You know, there might be Earthlings too. You know, I, I, we don't know yet. We we don't know we don't know and they 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 are um it's sort of like man versus monster so it's very it's like very clear this is the enemy and this is the enemy. 
I have two, one for my adult life and one as a kid. And the one for my adult life is Frankenstein. Kenneth Branagh did a remake of Frankenstein, I want to say early 90s, with Robert De Niro playing the monster, Frankenstein, and Kenneth himself playing Dr. Frankenstein. And they do a really great job of the whole metaphor of man's ambition and uh, betrayal and things like that. And midway through the movie, the monster is chasing Dr. Frankenstein, and Dr. Frankenstein is running for his life with his gang, you know, in the horse horse and buggy. And Dr. Frankenstein has his new bride with him, or to-be bride with him. And the monster Frankenstein is pissed because he's been betrayed by Dr. Frankenstein and wants his revenge on Dr. Frankenstein. And how does he get it? The monster creates some kind of diversion. Everybody goes out and looks for the monster, and the bride is left alone in her own room. And Kenneth, Dr. Frankenstein, realizes that she's been left alone, and he runs back in the room just as lightning strikes, and the monster is straddling over his bride-to-be with his fist open, looking at Dr. Frankenstein, and he punches his fist through her chest and rips out her heart right in front of Dr. Frankenstein. That messed me up. <laughs> that messed me up. You don't say. <laughs> I, was, I was an adult. I knew it was a movie, but it just freaked me out. <laughs> it's a little too much. You know? I don't know. Uh, but I thought it was when I was a kid. I was, stay, I was on a European trip with my parents. We were in Paris. I was just turned eight years old, and they put in a VHS tape, a movie called Close Encounter of the Third Kind. I'd never seen anything like this. And, you know... We, we don't know what the monster is in like the first 90% of that movie, if I recall correctly. But there's a scene, and it, it's during the part of the movie where people are disappearing. This boy wakes up at night. He's inside his home. He hears something going on outside, and he gets up, and he walks out into the foyer, and he sees lights coming into the window in the front door. He walks up to the front door, and this door has one of those little doggy doors, you know, and he he sees light and he peeks through the doggy door to look outside and he gets grabbed. But just as he's getting grabbed, his mother realizes what's happening and she runs and she dives and she grabs his feet. And so she is pulling the boy in the house and whatever's on the other side is pulling him out. And they go back and forth like three or four times, the mother screaming, the kid screaming, and whatever this bright light thing is taking this boy away from his mom. And she fails to get him, and she's taken away from him. This boy was, like, about my age at that time. So for the next two years, I had to sleep with somebody else. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> alien movie. They turned out to be friendly aliens. Spoiler alert. They were totally friendly. But that scene, that was, that was horror. Enough reliving trauma from the past. How about thrilling scenes from this book? Jack, what's a thrilling scene from this book? Well, there's a lot of thrilling scenes, and I think from a – this is a jump-out-and-scare-you story. And one of the features of the monsters is they are, in addition to being evil, having claws, teeth, superhuman strength, smelling like methane, and being afraid of the light, they're mimics. So they can mimic their things they hear. There's two police officers going in, and they hear a girl saying, help me help me. These guys are New York City's finest, and despite the fear and the weird smell of methane and the fact that they can't discharge firearms and all this, 
and they are going to try to save the girl. They find a hole and where the tracks have been destroyed. And one of them slips into one. They decide to go save the girl, despite their boss, you know, their, their supervisor saying, get the hell out of it. Right. They hear the little girl help me. And one of them tries to climb down into this hole. They find slips and I'll let the text pick up from there. I'm alive, but I think I broke my ankle. Can you see the girl? Something in it rustled in the darkness. Sweetie, is that you? Donaldson asked. Are you hurt? Help me. Darling, head toward the light. I'm here to help you. Nobody replied. Don't be scared. I'm a police officer. Donaldson crawled through the cavern and entered a tighter space where the stalactite scraped his, his back. His lungs burned and his ankle throbbed, but his determination to save the girl drove him on. His hands hit something soft, and he lifted a child's tattered and blood-stained white dress. Sweetie, my God, I'm coming. There's no need to be afraid. A figure darted across his front. He extended his lantern, inching closer to a dark corner and toward the sound of a girl's coarse breaths. Reach for my hand, honey. Donaldson's shirt snagged on a stalactite. He lowered the lantern and reached back to free his shirt. In his peripheral vision, the figure lunged at him. With no room to maneuver, there was nothing he could do. His hands grabbed his shoulders, nails pierced his flesh, and his body lifted in one sudden motion. The glistening ends of two stalactites exploded through the center of his chest and stomach and held him in the air. Blood spurted from his mouth and his vision blurred. What happens next is that his partner goes in to save him, following the sound of the girl saying, help me. And he meets a very similar end. You know, the mimicking is totally freaky. It's totally freaky. And it's kind of what makes these monsters go on another level to me. It shows an intelligence and an ability that's... Maureen, what about you? Thrilling scene? So I also, I loved the second mimic scene more, actually, with the one, because the first one is so good with the with the kid, but you kind of knew that something was up. The second mimic scene, when the SWAT team was going into the hole, and, like, it would be like, switch to night vision, and the SWAT team is figuring out, but I have switched to night vision. That was absolutely the creepiest for me, because it's... It took me a minute to figure out what was going on. But actually, my favorite scariest scene is the preview for the next book. <laughs> the one, if, did you guys read the, um, did you get the preview at the end for the next book for Brink? I don't think so. Okay. No. I won't say anything. It, they give you the opening chapter. It's one of the scariest things I've read. It was perfect. Oh, can't wait for that. Where'd you get it? In my Kindle. It oh, came with weird. the book. Mm, I, have the hard, I have the hard cover, so <laughs> old-fashioned. We don't get those bonuses. Lou, did you have a thrilling scene? Uh, yes, I do. I have one with Grady. It's the opening scene. For me, this is how the book got me, right? And it's this guy, Grady, and he is one of the people digging this uh, the, the new railway, you know? he's He has an accident. He has a family. He's got kids. And he's having this accident, and he thinks he survives, right? And that's where I'm going to pick it up. Right? It says, Grady pushed himself up, only to pause once more. He rested his hands on his knees, knees and exhaled, puffing his cheeks at the enormity of what he had just experienced and had barely escaped from. The man at the front of the cable dropped it and removed his hard hat. 
you're you're one lucky son of a bitch. Tell me about it, Grady, Grady said, and they both forced a smile. An ear-splitting crack quickly whipped away those expressions. A black fracture line tore between him and the workers, and his side of the ground dropped a few inches. He thrust forward, realizing the overhang had snapped, and he had only seconds, if that, to reach a secure part of the tunnel. Grady went to plant his boot and make his final lunge for safety, but the rock disappeared below him. His boot hit stale air, and he plunged into the abyss. That's how, that's how, that's the ending of chapter one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to full <laughs> throttle, like, by the end of chapter one. Yeah, that's the ending of chapter one. <laughs> so what what one of my creepiest scary scenes is down in the lair of the monsters um a scene where the the women are kind of in whatever that circle is that that they're attached to and can't seem to move and one of the big creatures comes over and stands over them and starts to do the whole claw tracing their belly thing and Ellen is saying the Hail Mary, and in between her lines, the author gives us another creepy, gross, sick thing that the monster does to her, and then she says another line, and we get another description of something horrible happening to her, and she does another line, and it, it this this just was so gross and creepy. I, I don't know what's going on, but... That was another one of my favorite scenes, yeah. So this, we're, we're calling this book, you know, a horror book, a thriller, we're not sure, a monster thriller... Pre-apocalyptic, possibly. Got to read the sequel. We don't know. There were so many horror tropes in this novel. It was just great. I mean, any any kind of horror thing that you can make a horror movie with or book with was in this story. I'm going to throw out a few. I'll go. I'll go first. Denial. In a lot of horror stories, the future victims are seeing the signs of something terrible, but they're just like rationalizing. Can't that big a deal? And so. Jack mentioned the scene where the subway car pulls into the station and it's full of blood. And at this time, there is plenty of evidence that something really bizarre is going on here, but everybody is stuck on it's terrorist. That denial persists, I think, for the first couple hundred pages of the book. And it's just great. And as readers, we know, you know, the whole, no, don't go down there. You know, how come you can't see the signs? But denial, that's one of them. Another one is um, a favorite. The rising water. You know, we got to get out of here. We're trapped. The clock is ticking. The water's coming in. And the water's rising. But here, the author doubles down and also has rising methane. So you got rising methane, which is like causing all kinds of problems. And then we got the rising water at the same time. Methane, water, what's going to get me? <laughs> so you got like these different clocks going on. Made for a great thriller. Jack, did you have any horror tropes? Confined spaces. There's a lot of confined spaces. There's a sensory deprivation. And I'm sorry, Maureen, I guess I'm stealing your thunder. And then the, the jump scare. I mean, I don't know if that's a horror trope, but the jump scare, if you look at original horror movies and stuff like that and early Stephen King, it wasn't filled with jump scare. It was filled with mounting tension. And this was just all jump scare. Maureen? The, I definitely I love the confined spaces and the suffocation. Um, but the there were two tropes in particular that were upended, and I loved it. And I gotta figure out which one I would talk about. Okay, so Samuels. It it was another one of those things where I was just like, I can't believe I'm reading this because it's so good. 
when they were in getting into the DSRV and Samuels was like, you can't leave me here. You need me. And what happens so often in horror stories, as well as other stories, is everybody's like, oh, yeah, we'll take the bad guy with us. And what I absolutely loved is they were like, mm, no, you're going to stay here and you're going to die. Now, he didn't die, which is the other horror trope that is fulfilled. It's like they come back from the dead all the time. But I just I love that he that he chose to make that. It was actually a point in the book where I was reading it and I went Yes! You know, because it's always the wrong choice to take the bad guy with you, you know? Um, so I loved that. And then the other trope that is often used in horror that I don't love so much for obvious reasons, but that he upended is the women are often punished for having sex in horror. And like in this particular book, Ellen having an extramarital affair is actually the thing that saved her life. And I was like, in reading that, I was like, holy cow, I don't think I've ever seen this before. And it was one of those things that it it was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And, of course, that has, like, serious ramifications down later on in the book. And a whole bunch of other tropes are upended. And the story just goes in a different direction than most of the stuff that, that I see from the perspective of a woman. So I really, really enjoyed reading that and it was like I was as I was making my notes I was just like this is great I don't think I've ever seen this before I can't believe this is happening I don't know where this is going to go but I love it I love it that's that's awesome I'm glad you found that I mean, Ellen also played the trope of, of the lone female she's like the lone survivor of the subway car and she you know has to somehow rally and do things to save herself um there was also Maybe not necessarily a horror trope, but something we I think we often see in horror movies, um, the blue-collar defiance. Sal mm -hmm. is like this blue-collar train operator, and he sees all the horror going on around him or what have you, or knows something – he knows something's wrong. And so he goes and does what other people won't go do in defiance of sort of the, the status quo. And we also have a strange couple reconciliation. Feel like horror drives people to realize who they love and 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 how much they really value them. As you know, alien monsters or whatever they are are about to chomp on them. You suddenly realize that oh no, you know this person's so important to me. Isolation, the comms go down, and that plays a key role. It's like the lights are out, comms are down, and we just have to go back to normal speaking and and we're you know the outside world, the inside world, the tunnel, the above ground, above ground. Just name a few. There's more, but let's move on. Unless, Lou, you had some, and I didn't give you a chance. Well, I'm in denial. This is not horror. <laughs> I don't <laughs> believe, you know, I just don't, I don't do horror, you know. My thing was the conspiracy, you know. You have this corporation who's behind everything, and you have the president of the United States involved, you know, the mayor of New York City, and the shadow of figure we just don't know anything about yet. Yeah, well, I, I want, let's let's pick up the conspiracy thing because that's sort of one of our themes is international conspiracy. All those things you just said. Yeah, and and, and that's how I'm going to look at this book, you know, as a thriller. I don't look at it as a horror. To set the stage on the for the international conspiracy when Hitler's lair was being dug, you know, prior to you know the Battle of Berlin, maybe was the first time that man recorded discovering these monsters, which I think is 
great place to start monsters, obviously. Well, per- perhaps modern man. Modern man. Modern man. Yeah. That's why I said recorded. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows about the past? And I hope that books two or three visit the past and give us some history of the monsters and our interactions with them. There's a guy, Van Ness. He inherits, in a way, this knowledge. And he is the one behind this, this worldwide conspiracy, buying off presidents, co-opting world leaders for his own selfish ends related to the monsters. And our president in this book doesn't let it happen to him. Meanwhile, his entire Joint Chief of Staff has, have already been co-opted and, and others uh, in his cabinet uh, without him being aware or knowing. And he is going to, I would assume, make it part of his mission to take this guy down at some point. The international conspiracy adds a great layer to this novel to open up to like to a bigger world. It's not just about this subway tunnel at all. The subway tunnel is a microcosm of this thing that's happening globally. And so mm-hmm. we get to sort of get a taste of that. And those little nibbles that are given to us along the way in the story are just so interesting. What are some other themes? Well, there was a big, what I particularly liked was there was a big theme of like heroism and what it looks like because each of the characters that made it out in like in horror, you don't, usually it's a small group that makes it out, but most of our main characters made it out of the subway, but each of them was heroic in their own different way. So like Sal is a different type of hero than Bowcut, who is a different type of hero than Reynolds, who is a different type of hero than Ellen, who is a different type of hero than Cafferty. And, but each one of them, like, Cafferty sacrifices his public, his public image to be able to pursue the greater good. He also kept the, kept the place going and the people going and the hope going. And then on top of that, like he sacrifices he is going to raise another child like it is his own so all of these things are their own form of heroics ellen real like is responsible for getting the women and like keeping them alive and getting like bocut also has a hand in it but ellen is the one that is the pillar of strength in that situation where she goes and pulls all the women out. Bowcut is your typical like action hero. She's in there, she's throwing the punches, she's making the decisions. She's the general. And then Sal is of course like the blue collar hero and what I particularly liked about that trope was that it was upended cuz that guy often doesn't make it out. And like but instead Sal actually goes in and saves the day. You know, he makes the rash decision, he makes the stupid decision, he makes the decision that should not work. But it it does. And it was so great. And so I just like the different themes of heroism and the different styles that were presented in the book. Yeah, and I'll I'll add in uh, Diego Munoz, who is like this former gangster who he's kind of rehabbed himself. And now he's a nice, you know, government job being a technical guy. And his former liabilities become assets because he – he had the change of heart somewhere between being a gangsta and and becoming who he is today and and all those former skills of weaponry and having an edge and sensing when somebody's suspicious all come to him but to serve the better good so that's i guess the sort of um prodigal son type hero fantastic so i want to add in um the theme of obsession and overdevelopment Cafferty, you know, admits during the story that he was obsessed with this project. He gave it his everything. 
and as a result, they overdeveloped and did not follow any kind of protocols, some protocols that they should have followed. And as a result, we have all these consequences. Um, as Jack alluded to, it was overdevelopment, you know, dug, digging Hitler's bunker so, bunker so deep that they tapped into the monsters that reawakened the monsters to modern man. Nice, obvious themes, good for any time perhaps in mankind's history, humankind's history. Again, in this book, it's a popcorn thriller, but behind it is, is, an, is plenty of substance. You know, they had another obsession with terrorists. Right. And it, it actually kind of pissed me off a little bit because I was like, OK, guys, they're not terrorists. And, and it's like um, and it's like, you know, New Yorkers, you know, I, I didn't go through 9-11. I mean, I did, but I wasn't in New York. But I would imagine they are always on high alert about terrorism, you know. So it was like terrorist this, terrorist that. <laughs> they're terrorists. I was like, they're not terrorists. That was a serious obsession. Yeah, and yes, it was. But even with the president, even with the president, you know, they made yeah. it a real, yeah, and it made it a real like uh, easy excuse for the conspiracy, you know, for for Van Ness, for the Van Ness people. Indeed, good hang, bad hang, good hang, bad hang. I feel like with this story, it's fairly clear cut. Agree, disagree, Diego Manaz, good hang, good hang, good hang, good hang. Bow cut. Good hang. Good hang. Good hang. Yeah, good hang. I, I would definitely respect her. Yes. Yeah. She probably has some good stories. Cafferty, the mayor. Good hang? After Maybe. his failure. Good hang. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, even his own security guy, North, gets upset with him when he realizes, what? <laughs> you basically caused all this? And Cafferty's like, I did, I did, but I didn't create the monsters, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Sal, good hang, bad hang. Good hang. Good hang. Oh, definitely good hang. And on my bad hang list is Flamont, the fake French. Dude, terrible hang. And Samuels. Awful. Terrible. Awful. Hang. Yeah. Did he? No, it turned out well for no one that hung out with him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Except for indirectly, he saved Ellen's life. Yes. Should leave yes. Don't well, know if it was intentional. Mm, <laughs> it's, well, Did he do that on purpose? So that is the interesting thing because I, my favorite passage, which we will get to later, has an interesting hint that I did not pick up on the first time I read it. Nice. All right, so we'll, get to, we'll get to that. But unfortunately, we're kind of out of town, out of time for this segment because it is now time to have a word for our sponsor for episode five. And when we return, we'll do Hollywood. This episode is brought to you by Pilgrim EX International. Pilgrim EX plans team developmental engagements that transform individual coworkers into a cohesive, harmonious corporate team. We live in a results-oriented world. The need for corporate team building is well known. Effective team building delivers results. Corporate encounters under unfamiliar, challenging, and often dire circumstances help associates to bond like nothing else. Through a series of highly motivating, hair-raising, team-building challenges, Pilgrim EX can help your corporate team improve essential skills like communication, planning, problem-solving, and conflict resolution. Boost your team's performance with Pilgrim EX. If you want the benefits of corporate team and building, such as improved team socialization, enhanced team performance, 
healthy competition, improved team spirit, heightened creativity, and excellence in communication, you want Pilgrim EX to craft an encounter that really challenges your team. By overcoming a life-threatening, sometimes sanity-destroying challenge, your team will thrive as never before. Forget traditional team-building exercises. Instead of ropes courses and escape rooms, how about escaping actual ravenous cannibals or slaying an actual fire-breathing dragon? Instead of go-karts and timed baking challenges, how about rappelling into an active volcano while fending off a zombie horde? These corporate encounters will bring about the corporate culture that breeds success. If your team can recover an enchanted amulet from a clutch of vampires, they can exceed sales quotas. If they can behead a minotaur, they can optimize their P&L. You get the picture. After a successful campaign, your team will be stronger and better than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to this success story from an executive sales vice president at Rave Brokerage. Sales were lagging as we headed into Q4. I knew that we needed to exceed our revenue projections by at least 30% to have any chance of meeting our year-over-year revenue goal. Nothing seemed to work. We were selling fewer and smaller tickets. Worst of all, I just couldn't get the team motivated. I had heard good things from a CEO buddy of mine about Pilgrim EX International, so I gave him a shot. Sales were down, expenses were up, and I was feeling desperate. The customer service rep I spoke to was very professional, and she promised results. I had nothing to lose, so I signed the team up. As soon as I hung up, the entire team, suddenly and without any warning, found itself in a ghastly landscape under a blood moon to the sounds of howling. To this day, I have no idea how that happened. Anyway, the howling was drawing closer. I have to admit, I'd never been so scared in my life. We were pursued for a few hours before whatever it was that was chasing us had us cornered. We didn't have time to bicker, hem and haul, or get bogged down in boardroom politics. We had to get to work, and fast. The sales team fashioned weapons out of old tree branches. The accounts payable team collected heavy rocks, while the finance team built a defensive perimeter. Next thing you know, a werewolf leaps out of the brush with a blood-curdling scream. I nearly soiled myself. The finance team's defenses actually held pretty well, while accounts payable bombarded the beast with rocks. With the werewolf weakened, sales went in for the, for the kill with sharpened stakes. It was the best moment of our lives. If we hadn't worked together, we'd all be dead. Actually, Doug from IT did get killed. The werewolf just gutted him, entrails all over the place. Aside from Doug, though, the team performed incredibly well. In order to achieve success, we really had to work together like never before. Eventually, I collapsed from exhaustion, only to wake up in my own bed. The experience really improved our workplace culture. The good news is that we exceeded our revenue plan by 47% in the fourth quarter. I've never seen a team operate so efficiently. If you can put down a werewolf, you can sell anything. It was amazing, and I owe it all to Pilgrim EX International. I can't recommend Pilgrim enough. That werewolf really brought out the best in each and every one of us. Well, except Doug. He's dead. Folks, that's just one example of the hundreds of positive testimonials. If you're an executive or an HR professional and you want to improve your team's communication planning, problem solving, and conflict resolution skills, visit Pilgrim EX International on the web at www.booksfromearth.com backslash Pilgrim EX to learn more. For a healthy work culture, look up Pilgrim EX International and tell them Books from Earth sent you. Now, back to the pod. All right, we're in Hollywood. We get to cast this movie, TV show, 
or whatever. We can get anybody we want. Lou, who do you want to cast? I started with Mary Catherine, Seth Rogen. She, you know, is a little overweight, and he's not that overweight, you know, and that's how Catherine was, you know. But that was one of his results. He was like, you know, when I get out of this, he's going to work on his fitness because, you know, those, those uh, tunnels down there, he was, I think he was having a hard time. So Seth Rogen, I like him a lot. I think he'll do well. But my favorite pick was uh, Diego, and my pick was Michael Pena, and he's the guy from Ant-Man, you know. This, the the reason, because he does seriousness and comedy so well, you know, and this book had like this hint of comedy throughout the whole book. Yeah, the book book does walk a little bit of that line with so many of these. It reminded me a little bit of Cabin in the Woods. Jaws, I think, did that. Yeah, and it just has every trope in it to the point where you're like, this is actually transcending the genre because it's it's doing something. It's like a comment. It's meta. It's meta. (laughs) So meta. (laughs) The unicorn, amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So I had Michael Pena's Manaz as well. I mean, there's the the name, yeah, and. He was also in End of Watch with Jake Gyllenhaal, and there he plays a cop. And I was just, I just, the character just seemed perfect. Slide in for this. I got a pick from Munoz that I'm going to fight for. Okay. Have you guys seen Orphan Black? Yes. Yes. Michael Mando, who plays Vic from Orphan Black, the boyfriend. He's also been on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He is like a legit Shakespearean actor, and Munoz has such an incredible character arc. I really want to see him do this part. He is so good. Like, everything that he did is Vic. The vulnerability, the intensity, the craziness. Like, he was just such... There was one moment where you're feeling sorry for him, and then the next moment where you're terrified of what's he, what he's going to do. I am like, I'm in love with this guy. By the way, Michael Mando, if you are single, hit me up. But the, <laughs> but like he's on top of that, he's just an incredible actor. Incredible. Okay. All right. We'll get him and Michael Pena in for the casting call. Yes. We'll, we'll, yeah, get we'll, we'll have him read it in and see who's better. Oh, I was thinking arena fights. <laughs> hey. That's that's another way to do casting, I guess. <laughs> so for Cafferty, uh, I like Seth Rogen. I, I kind of want th- – there's kind of three people I want to be in this movie all at the same time because each one of them usually carry a movie. So I, I kind of want Mayor Cafferty to be Will Smith. Does not fit the image of how he's described, but I, I just want it to be Will Smith. I have nothing else to say. <laughs> He'd be great. He'd be great. Yeah, he'd be great. Plus, we'd sell tickets. We could do a July 4th, you know, Independence Day <laughs> release. I'd want him to have gray hair, just like a wig. And give him a wig of, like, grayish hair, make him a little older. Yeah, he'll age him up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. We can do that. Um, or Seth Rogen. We'll, we'll again, we'll have to do a casting call. Anybody? Okay. Who else? Maureen, did you have anybody I, besides Manoz? I do. So I'm. there's a couple of of women that I want to see in some of these roles. And I'm not sure who I want where. Now, I just saw Us, which was fantastic. So I kind of want Lupita Nyong'o in everything. I don't care if she plays Cafferty. 
I don't care if she plays Reynolds. I don't care if she plays Bowcut. I don't care. She needs to be in everything all the time. <laughs> but the other the other one that I was thinking is AJ Cook from Criminal Minds, who plays JJ. She's the blonde with the big eyes. And I was thinking that she would actually be a good Ellen or Bowcut. The the two characters are really similar. I love watching her and I love she's also because she's a CIA agent on Criminal Minds, I know she can kick some ass and she's done it. So that those were just the two people that I was thinking. And I think that is it for my casting for this. Yes. Nice. Alright, here here's who I got. So Will Smith, I want him and Denzel to be in the same movie with Bruce Willis. Oh, I like this. Like so that's that's why Will Smith. I just didn't know what where to place him. So Bruce Willis will be Sal, and we'll beef up that character a little bit, give him some more scenes, so Bruce will be into it, you know, not just Ken. I feel like Bruce would have to put on a slight, slight fat suit for this. Yeah. You think mm-hmm. Sal's uh, uh, kind of a big guy? I think Sal's a bigger guy, yeah. I'm just, I just think Bruce can do that kind of blue collar, t- you know, take him back. Oh, he's the best. You know, yeah, yeah, to where he got his start, you know, as a cop. You know? What about Denzel? Okay, so Denzel could be North. He is, Mc- he is Cafferty's protector. You know, he, can, I think, I feel like Denzel can play that kind of weapons guy, security guy, and and uh, so Cafferty would be Will Smith, Denzel would be his protector, and Bruce Willis would be Sal. Just getting those three guys together. If we can do it. Ooh, that'd be cool. But who's, who's Reynolds? Reynolds. Okay, here's a twist. Because Jillian, Reynolds Jillian is there. Jillian oh. Anderson. Yeah? A female Reynolds. Yeah. Why not? Why not? I That's mean, great. she's done Aliens, you know, in the whole TV series. And uh, she she's still out there, you know, doing stuff. She can really pull off all kinds of subtle roles. Of course, then Ellen... Could still be a woman, mm-hmm. or yep. not? I'm um, for it. You know, we we could we can play around with that. Bowcut, Michelle Rodriguez. Oh, she good plays call. Letty from Fast and Furious. I mean, that's a shoe in. I mean, to me, she's like the person you have to beat in order to get this role. Flament, Flamand. How about Lambert Wilson? He played what? the Merovingian, the Ooh. Merovingian from The Matrix. Remember with the thick, fake French accent, all dressed up. He's in that club. And the, uh, oh. you know, um, <laughs> they, they go in to visit him because he has the key maker, the key master. Yeah. He's like got this over the top French accent and everybody's <laughs> super stylized. And he's basically the hideout for like lost programs or programs that don't want to be eaten by the Matrix or something. Yes. Yeah, I can see that. All right. And for Samuels, I have Jason Isaacs from the OA. He also played Lucius Malfoy in the Potter movies. Love him. All right. Okay, that's we got casting calls. Um, okay, is this a movie or TV series? Movie. Movie. We agree. Agree. And rating. You want to do PG thirteen or you want to go R? R. 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 Okay. Good. 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 We need some blood. <laughs> we want stalactites through the abdomen. Yes. <laughs> I want a bloody subway. I want to see a claw going around a pregnant belly. Like oh, just man. gross. Gross. Yeah, it work. You've got to go R. It's it as as a comparison point. The movie Aliens was R. So, 
We got to go R. Okay, so what kind of style? I was kind of thinking, like, what kind of style do we want to go? Do we want to go, like, normal monster movie? Um, do we want to go Cloverfield style? That's kind of more of that, like, first-person shooter kind of camera angles. Do we want to go gritty and dark, like Alien? You know, there's, like, a lot of dark scenes without much light. What, what's, what's the feel there? I'm for gritty and dark just because I can't do shaky cam. It, like, I wish I could, but it makes me ill. So I, I also – I like gritty and dark. I think it adds to the suspenseful. And on top of that, the humor is just going to have that much more of an impact when it's in it, – when it's when you're in that kind of nasty, like, never getting out of this doom scenario, humor gets amped up just a little bit. So that's what I would like. I'm down gritty and dark. Agreed. I, I would add – gritty and dark, but fight scenes from the Born Identity, the way they were done with, like, rat, like high-speed type stuff, I think it should have some of that. Like, running should be someone running as fast as they can run, you know? Got it. Yes, like real-time speed. Yep. Real-time speed, yeah. Okay. Alright. So we're ready to make that into a movie. Alright, good job, Hollywood. We hope you can and live up to our expectations. Or is this big screen or little screen? Oh, big screen. big screen. Big screen, I agree. Big screen. What about like, Netflix? Memorial Day release, give me the popcorn. Like, yeah. I am in the theater. I think this is on the big screen, not on net, not on streaming. Yeah. Yeah, see, that's that's my thing. We get Will, we get Denzel, we get Bruce on a July 4th release. Lupita. Oh, yeah. This is, this won't be July 4th, it'll be like, you know, uh, Halloween. Mm. Ah, oh, no, we haven't had is... a good Halloween movie. Yeah. No, this is July fourth. July fourth. Yeah. Guys, Our... we're doing a podcast. We should just go to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're doing this podcast. <laughs> we're planning for our next jobs. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm waiting by my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, good job, Hollywood. I hope they can live up to our expectations. What makes this book special? Action and adventure. It's an action thriller with tones of international conspiracy. I like it because it follows a formula really, really well. But just like um, John Scalzi upends the formula at certain appropriate points in time where you're just like, oh, my God, that's really cool. And after having like skimmed it again for the podcast – it's like, oh, there's also some stuff hidden there, and I can't wait for the next book to come out. For me, this was the first time I read a book where it felt like I was watching an IMAX movie. It was just, it was just constant spectacular, 100, 360 degrees, loud sounds, full action, totally gripping. That's what made this book special for me. I couldn't put it down. Literally could not put it down. Maureen. Lou and Jack have read in some passages. How about yourself? Do you have a favorite passage? I do, and I, it's my favorite passage because of what I picked up on the second time. And I'm wondering if you guys will see it. So it is where they are discussing the recording. They're doing the playback to see if anybody survived. And it says, just as abruptly as they invaded his headphones, the screen turned to silence. Munoz sighed as his shred of optimism faded along with the voices. He reached for his headphones. Tom, huh? Munoz bolted in his chair. He isolated the clip and played it again. Tom, help. 
He ran it again to make sure. Tom, help me. There was no mistaking the voice of Ellen Cafferty crying out a second after the main body of sound had ended, as if she were still alive after the attack had ended. Munoz ripped off his headphones and spun to face Reynolds. I found something. Something? A single voice shortly after the main attack. It's Ellen Cafferty, Mr. President. What do you mean, main attack? I'm puzzled. So I didn't pick up on this the first time, but it was targeted. If Ellen had not been on that subway, the subway would not have been attacked. Because she was pregnant. I don't know. That's what we're that's what we're going to find out. Like it was because she was pregnant, but was it because Flamen impregnated her? Was it because they sensed her coming? Like how did they know? But it was a targeted attack, and it was hidden, and it was brilliant, and it is my favorite passage in the book. And what are they doing with those pregnant women? Why are they so important? I don't know, but they all came at different times. It's like these aliens, these creatures, whatever they are, have been lying dormant until we disturbed them. They are not bothering us, but all of a sudden, we have something that they want. It's really cool. Pregnant women. <laughs> targeted. Targeted. If she wow. had not been there, the subway incident would not have happened. You're going deep. You're going it's deep. Messed up. Messed I know. Up. I love it. <laughs> this book is so good. Episode 5, featuring Awakened by James Murray, has come to an end. We'd like to thank Pilgrim EX International, whose generous funding made this episode possible. Pilgrim EX, for a healthy work culture. You can find more information about Pilgrim EX at booksfromearth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, rate us, or visit our website. Earth makes great books. Come relive them with us. So long and until next time, this is Josh, Maureen, Jack, and Lou signing off. Good night. Good night. That was really good, guys. That was great. Yeah. Nice. Lou, did you have a thrilling scene? Lou, we can't hear you. Uh, yes, I do.